You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Get ready for your mind to be totally blown. Or maybe not. I don't know. But I've got on my good friend, Jesse Michaels. He's been interviewing people all over the world for his show about psychic powers, UFOs, curiosity, and the frontier of human thinking. So here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. By the way, I'm Twitter verified as of this morning. So, Jay, you're Twitter verified? Congratulations. Yeah, I pay $8. Oh, so. oh it, uh, <laughs> they, you could do it now? You could pay $8? Yeah. Yeah, if you look at my Twitter, I'm verified. I, I have the blue chat mark now. Jesse, are you going to get Twitter verified? Yeah, I will. I like Elon, and uh, I want to give him a chance and opt in to yeah. whatever he does initially. I think it's a very smart move, actually. Like, to, you know, everybody's complaining, oh, $8 a month. A, we use Twitter all day long. So it's not like it's, it's like some useless thing we never use. B, who wants all the ads? I'd rather have uh twitter be state you know finally make some money and be stable and you know what it'll be good for the feed because it'll eliminate all the bots that won't pay yeah. eight dollars a month and just people who are willing to take this seriously and and pay will be on my feed that's fine with me 100 percent. ads just create a crazy bad incentive system where you have to the more hyperbolic and attention seeking and uh click you are uh you know the better and I think if if it's more of kind of a payment subscription model, you'll just end up with more incentives towards quality and like substantive discourse, which ideally Twitter moves towards. And 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 also, I would think that because you're actually paying now for the service, which means you're no longer the product. You know, there's that saying: mm-hmm. if you're not paying anything, then you're the product. So they they would sell yep. our data to advertisers and so on. But now, if I'm actually buying something from tw- Twitter they probably need to be a little more transparent about their algorithm because I want to make sure if I'm paying that my tweets are seen more than like a bot's tweets or some troll's tweets. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. No, it's a really good initial litmus test for like, is this person a human? And then, you know, beyond that, I think they need to do some KYC. Uh, Cause the one thing that this does do is it like reduces the barrier to entry to becoming verified. Like anybody, it's not like an exact authentication marker. But I think if they can move in that direction and then you have the the initial filtering of, of bots, yeah, hopefully it 
moves in a, in a positive direction. It does feel a little chaotic right now. I don't know what your take on that is. Like all of the moves just feel like insanely, you know, everything feels like really fast and slightly manic or something. But um, yeah, hopefully he pushes through. I mean, that's just called getting getting shit done. Yeah, that could be totally. Jack Dorsey even came out and said he hired way too many people. Like people are equating all these layoffs in Facebook and Twitter with the economy. Yeah. They're just, they've just been very poorly run companies the past five years, both of them. Oh man. I used to work. I think, you know, this, I used to work at Google. I was there for four years. You interviewed me at and Google. I think, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's where we I met. did a Google yeah. talks there. That was you, awesome. you were the interviewer. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. We, for choose yourself. That was, that was a lot of fun. Um, I remember that day. But I remember just being there and, and thinking, you know, they could can 95% of this company and it, it would be fine. Like there's like a printing press, which was search. And then there was, you know, all this ridiculous fat in the form of like R&D projects that were kind of bridges to nowhere. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I think uh, party time is over in the tech world. I think it's uh, maybe 2001 all over again. I think it's probably healthy. It's, you know, I'm a believer in Schumpeterian creative destruction. And I think um, uh, things kind of blowing up and a lack of resources can actually beget innovation and and the opposite kind of stagnates it. So um, I'm excited to see what happens. And I think Twitter sets a good precedent for everybody else. If you saw today, Meta fired, I think 11%, 12%, a, a decent amount of their 70,000 person workforce. I think, you know, I just want to point out, like, I, I feel bad for all these people laid off. And obviously the fact that the stock market's been down for a straight year is not helping their financial situations and, and, and on and on and on. But I think what you just said is very important, that lack of resources encourages innovation. And I'm not yeah. speaking at an entrepreneurial level, but at a personal level, like whenever I've been personally suffering, whether it's financially or in my relationships or whatever, what you just said is really true. If you have the right, you know, mindset about it, and that's even a cliche word. I don't know how to say it, but with a lack of resources, if you don't go to the worst case scenario in your head every second, you can find innovative solutions that are that would put you in even in a better spot than you were before. And I know this because I've experienced it over and over. When I was most totally. scared, if I didn't let the fear kill me, I could rise. And it was hard and it was painful, but you're right. Like that is such an important sentence you just said. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a Kabbalistic principle or something like the inner and the outer are diametric opposites. People think if you, if you get money, it'll solve your problems and, and you'll have all these, you have all these brilliant ideas now. And if you, as long as you, you know, you're a millionaire, then you can just invest in all these things and do all this cool shit. And it's just BS. It's like, it's, it's, it's really on you to like make it, it kind of a personal internal change. And that will change your outer circumstances. And there's like a weird, you know, translation delay where it sometimes that takes it takes a little bit longer for um, really positive changes to occur when you once you've changed internally. But you have to kind of have faith, you know, that it's not a perfect, it's not like a vending machine. But every time I think you, your back is up against the wall, you're putting like a coin in like a, a spiritual piggy bank or something, and it will come to roost in the future. If that's what you're focused on, it, like you, you use a critical word, which is seldom used in today's language, which is faith. And we're not talking about faith in an old book or faith in some religion, but faith in yourself that, and, and the brain really and consciousness that 
if you, you know that when you're when you're you're when you're backed into a corner you see everything around you like if you have that faith uh -huh. it's you're either going to see everything bad around you or you're going to start seeing everything good around you while fighting really hard not to see the bad because the bad is overwhelming because that's the fear and and you'll have it when you have that lack of resources but it will work if you take that energy and turn it around and it might be painful and it might take a while like you said but you've got to have faith that it will work. I mean, it's amazing to me when I resorted to a, it doesn't mean have faith and just sit around and wait for an idea to drop on you. You have to take action every day that you have. It's like you said, the actions in those moments are those quarters in the vending machine, but the action plus faith plus, you know, focusing on your creativity will, will create real opportunities. And I've seen it over and over again, not only with me, but my readers and so on. I think so too. And I, you know what? I, you know, people always say, you know, it's a cliche to say life is unfair. And I think um, short term, it can be super unfair and it can be super uh, kind of, uh, you know, wonky in terms of what happens to you and unpredictable. And then obviously people are born into like really disadvantageous sort of circumstances. And so, you know, I, you, you can't sort of knock that. But having said that, I think life is more fair than people realize. And if you apply, that philosophy you just mentioned over a very long time horizon, things tend to actually work out. And you, you see it, you, you, you see certain friends or whatever, where it's like, they just, they have good energy and you know, whatever happens to them, they, they, they keep fighting through obstacles and they see adversity actually as kind of instructive, you know, growth catalyzing kind of events instead of the opposite, you know, instead of these things that happen to them that are kind of arbitrary or random. And then, you know, things tend to work out for those people. I would take it even one step further. Like, let's say everything's going great for you and you have the millions in the bank, you have a great family, relationships, all this stuff. Try to find an area of life that you're passionate about where you do lack resources, where things will be hard mm -hmm. for you to, to excel in, in, a, in that community or that industry or whatever. And you need that to, to grow. Uh, and it's not, it's not that hard to do. And it's good practice for those inevitable times when, when things are scary, because no matter what, it all gets scary at the end. But this is, this is <laughs> only re related to what I want to talk to you about, Jesse. You've been, mm -hmm. you've been doing these amazing interviews on basically what I would say, I'll first describe it as the extreme fringe of <laughs> technology combined with mystery. That's how I'll describe it. Specifically though, yeah. like you were talking to serious scientists and professionals, people that we can largely, you know, believe in their credentials. And you're talking them to them about UFOs, psychic powers, mm -hmm. uh, all <laughs> sorts of interesting things where you're, no matter what somebody believes, there's some interesting things out there yes. that you've talked to people about and what, what yes. got you into this? Cause it's, it's so fascinating. Cause again, we have to we have to be okay with not knowing everything in the world and you're kind of hitting into that frontier of where we know some things but not a lot of things and but there's definitely things we don't yes. know what what got me into this is i have a close friend who's a both a kind of a high agency you know impressive person he works in finance and his in a sort of a past life he um was really involved with the kind of a princeton parapsychology lab and so um he got me interested in all these experiments 
in the uh, 70s, 60s and 70s, and, and even earlier, actually. Every elite university in the U.S. had what was called a parapsychology department, or most of them did. And this was literally the study of mind over matter. And so um, the experiment that he was, you know, most deeply involved in was called the random event generator, which is basically a, you know, a binary computer. So it's a computer that produces ones and zeros. It shows up on a, st- on a graphical interface and it's tied to something that's provably random, like, um, you know, uh, radioactive isotope decay, something like that. And in- quantum mechanics, you know, it's, it's going to be random. And so you should get the same amount of ones as you do zeros over a long enough time scale. It's essentially like flipping a coin. And there's an observer present, and they try to skew the output towards ones and zeros. And uh, you can statistically, in a statistically significant way, you can skew the effect. You can actually like make more ones show up or more zeros show up. Just to go down that, that's a very yep. big thing you just said. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. we need to drill yeah. down a little bit. So they've seen <laughs> yeah, yeah, people who claim to have mm-hmm. the power to do so come in and statistically significantly have more ones than zeros. Yeah, beyond the expected standard deviation, exactly. So yeah, you get like a Z-score, your you know, um, statistical distribution that's be- beyond what you would expect over you know a, a group of people. And so for me, it's always like the inro- the, the my foray into, okay, there's something interesting here in any topic is high agency, really impressive person that I trust on like a really you know, kind of filial personal level. And then they're saying something that doesn't fit my like normal epistemological paradigm of reality. Like in that test that they did, when they tested on a group of people, there are going to, just by statistics, some people will have a lot of ones. So if everybody's claiming to be psychic and they're testing like a, a thousand people, one of those people will have a statistically significant number of ones I mean, it's sort of like you have to have a group of people who aren't claiming to be psychic and a group of people who are claiming to be psychic and see if the group who's claiming to be psychic have more ones than zeros. I'm just wondering if the the statistics holds up. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So basically, it's more you take uh, an average, you know, uh, sampling of the average population size and you adjust for all the sort of basic things like demographics. And then you get all of those people to intend on ones. And then you would see beyond the normal standard deviation, a skewing effect towards ones. And you could do that in sort of a repeatable way. And then you could do the same thing with zeros. I see. So it's it's like the the same group of people are showing higher than above average ones when told to do ones and higher than average zeros when told to do zeros. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's interesting. it is, yeah, and there's a guy named J.B. Ryan who ran Duke's Parapsychology Institute from 1930 to 1960. I did this test did at Duke. These, you did it. Okay, there you go. I, I, um, so I was you did the card, the card test. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I have an app actually on my phone called ESP Trainer that is based on that, that card um, guessing game. Well, you don't know. You know, maybe if you get into a flow at, at a certain point, you, you are – you might be more psychic. I think everybody's a little psychic, but I think the, that's all of that is to say, all of that is to say, you know, you, you asked like what got me into this and it was, it was that it was like the idea that I, th- I think, you know, um, I believe in p- paradigm shifts in, in science and then in kind of a larger epistemology as well. And I, I've seen things kind of, th- seems 
things uh, seem to be slowing down in science. Uh, you know, it feels like we're reaching kind of the Heisenberg limits of of things, and and physics is largely stagnated. Um, you know, string theory hasn't really um, uh, given us a lot of progress, and so uh, I think the next kind of paradigm shift involves mind over matter. I think there's something very fundamental about consciousness that we don't understand, and then I think that really relates to the to the UFO story as well. And so, to the extent I can investigate this stuff as much as I can with as much empirical rigor as I can, I think, you know, maybe we can, we can bring about the next, the next paradigm shift, which would be, which would be super exciting. It it is interesting because at first glance, I would dismiss, I mean, you mentioned every elite university had a parapsychology Mm -hmm. uh, department and I would emphasize the word had, I don't think they do anymore. I think it's basically, I think a lot of it is, is a lot of the claims out there is basically BS and the whole field was kind of debunked, but I do agree. There's results like what you're mentioning. And there's, there's other things just about the brain that we don't understand. For instance, let's say you move your arm, your brain knows you're going Mm -hmm. to move your arm before you know, you're going to move your arm before, which seems odd. Like you're the one making the decision to move the arm and, but the brain, you're not even thinking of your arm yet. And the brain is already getting you know, firing the synapses to move your arm. And you're not even, you haven't even begun thinking about, I need to pick this Rubik's cube up or whatever. And so, so we know that there's stuff about the, there's a lot of things about the brain we don't understand that it's literally, it's a gray area, you know, it's all gray matter in the brain and we don't understand what's in there. So, and we're just beginning, like, like I talked to neuroscientists and they start telling me stuff and I say, oh, I never heard that. And they said, that's because this was a scientific result just six months ago. So like, we're just on this frontier of learning what the brain does right now. With, at the risk of sounding um, too iconoclastic, especially for an you know, amateur, I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I do think that's a problem with our modern sort of zeitgeist is you have to sort of disclaim that before saying anything. I think we have no idea how consciousness works. I don't think it's locally produced in the brain. I think it's transmitted by the brain. I think the brain is a, an antenna or a receiver and I think one kind of inroad into um, that being the answer, or one one tell on that being the answer, is the binding problem, which is sort of a classic problem in neuroscience. Which is like, wh- why uh, do I have this uninterrupted movie that I'm watching in the form of consciousness? Like, why am I? I'm, I'm like seeing you on the screen, James. I'm looking at Jay. You know, I'm uh, looking at this picture behind me. It's all this sort of seamless thing. And yet all we can understand in the brain are these kind of disparate pathways, the optical pathway, the auditory pathway, you know, Wernicke's language area, Broca's speech area, all these things. And we don't understand how they sort of meld uh, together. And to me, that pattern matches to a TV or a radio, where if you listen to beautiful music playing on, on a radio or you're watching this, this amazing, you know, watching Saving Private Ryan, whatever, um, you don't know how that image or how that music is being produced by just looking at the capacitors or the battery or the you know the the metal and the antenna or whatever like the constituent parts of the thing don't tell you how the thing is produced you would need to know that that's actually tapping into uh, uh, RF and do a radio frequency that is transmitting the content 
and the content is coming from somewhere else. And so I think that's the most interesting. And it, William James was a big fan of this theory, as was Aldous Huxley and some other interesting thinkers. Uh, this guy, uh, Henri Bergson, French guy in the late 19th century, too. And a lot of those guys were considered, you know, a little, let's say, beyond the frontier. <laughs> but also, sure. like, like, do you meditate? Yes. So as you know, then probably like a lot of types of meditation kind of take the view that your, your thoughts are not you. Like a lot of people quite reasonably, I think, think their thoughts are them. These are my thoughts. This is what I am thinking. I, I you know, but, but it, in various, there's lots of different kinds of meditation, but in various styles of meditation, the whole idea is to, to, put arm's length distance between you and your thoughts, observe, not stop them, but observe them, understand that that's not you and just keep practicing that. Like a lot of yes. like Zen meditation yeah. is all about saying I'm not my thoughts. And it's not, again, you can't stop your thoughts, but you could uh, uh, observe them. Like you said, you can't, it's an ongoing movie. You can't stop it, yes. I mean, which is a, I think a myth of meditation that it stops it. But so I think, you, you know, meditators for thousands of years have had this insight that I'm not my heart. I'm not my brain. These are all things that are part of this body, but not the real me. It, totally. And, and, and I think uh, another way to put it is that every brain has an electromagnetic field around it. And there's actually a, a British uh, professor of molecular genetics at the university of Surrey named John Joe McFadden that talks about this. Like, that that could be the literal receiver of ideas. And when you quell the activity in your brain, uh, maybe you're you're just you're reaching a different frequency. And that's why the ideas you get are more sort of distilled and better and pure or whatever once you've done your 20 minutes of transcendental or Zen meditation or whatever. And I just think we're, we're we don't understand this stuff yet, but I think I think I think that's the the uh, road to progress. I don't think it's like more dissecting. Yeah, that's interesting. Like instead of taking the traditional kind of science path of, okay, here's where we are. We know how to sequence the human genome. What's next? You're kind of going mm -hmm. to this extreme question and, and kind of moving back. Like how can, we, how can we get some answers about something that's almost unknowable as opposed to looking at what's knowable and trying to figure out how to learn a little bit more. Like, what, what if, like you've talked to now a lot of yeah. these, um, I don't want to say, psychics, but like pro professors and scientists <laughs> who have explored this, like, like first you yeah. talk, or you talk to the CIA agent guy, um, I wrote down <laughs> his name, uh, the Stargate guy, Paul Smith, uh, who, who yep. would help, he helped, he trained Rob Lowe, the actor, how to do remote viewing. Like what was his story? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so he was, uh, in the Stargate program and he was a little later, I think he was in the eighties. So Stargate, uh, I believe started in 1972 and it ended in 1995. And originally it was a CIA program and then it, it got moved to the, I think the DIA or the defense department. And it was this sort of motley crew of former military personnel who were often kind of self-reported psychics along with honestly stage magicians, people like you know, Yuri Geller, who was literally a stage magician, and then like Ingo Swan, who just, he was really the guy who kicked off the whole thing. This guy, Hal Putoff, who started the program, who was actually a, you know, classically trained laser physicist, um, found Ingo Swan. 
And Ingo Swan was this just notoriously, freakishly good sort of psychic. And Paul Smith joined later in the 80s. And I think the first person I met actually um, in the program was a guy named Joseph McMonagall, who's known as remote viewer number one. He's done more remote viewings than anyone else uh, that have been publicly documented. He's been on TV a bunch. And uh, I, I, I got to know him. And, and, and it's just one of these people where you're like, okay, something's going on here. Like he's, he, <laughs> he's got some special powers. Like what, and, and what, sort of what did he down. do? Like what, what did he tell you? And, and, and my second question to that would be, if you put him in a room with Penn and Teller, what would they do to yeah. try to debunk him? Um, I'm not sure on the Penn and Teller thing, because I know like James Randi tried to debunk all these people, but I'm pretty sure like he put out like a bounty, but then like when people were, you know, actually trying to like prove these things like he didn't actually get, follow through on on uh uh engaging with them at all and i think a lot of people had issues with him um i'm not sure what penn and teller would do that's a really good uh, uh sort of question but what, what joseph mcmonagall did when i initially met him is i was with two friends and he uh came with like these envelopes and uh he was like okay i have a picture in this envelope one of you is just going to draw what you think is in the picture one of our friends, one of my friends just drew like this, like kind of ball with like some spikes on top of it. And uh, so me and my other, he left the room, the friend that, that did the drawing, uh, me and my other friend were left and uh, we were like kind of left to like guess what was in the drawing. And uh, so we you, like, you okay, heard your friend drawing like? the draw. Yeah, yeah, we saw him draw it and then he left the room. And so we we just we're looking at this ball with the spiky thing, and Joe's sitting with me and my friend, and um, saying basically, "What does this look like to you?" And so basically, my friend that did the drawing kind of did like an, essentially like kind of a remote viewing. Like he didn't even know it was in the envelope, but he just did this drawing. He left the room. Me and my friend are left trying to figure out what the ball with the spiky thing is, and we're like, "Okay, maybe maybe it kind of looks like a pineapple," and so. You know, one of us says that and then boom, take out the photo and it's a pineapple. And so it's just this like weird thing. It is crazy. But you know, I'm it wondering like this, this guy yeah. has done that. Let's say he's done this mm -hmm. 10,000 times. Okay. With people. Mm -hmm. And he knows mm -hmm. statistically, because the photograph's small, it's not going to be like uh, a very complicated, uh, you know, intricate picture. It's going to be something simple. So that's kind of the message he's conveying. And so people are either going to draw a, a, a circle or a square. And so he has one, maybe he has one envelope that's a, a circle, like a pineapple, and another that's a square, like a house. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, there are also, like, things he could have done. He could have said pineapple in conversation a few times or whatever. There right. are, like, you know, ways he could, like, have subliminally messaged, Yeah, you know, the, the thing. Like, for magicians, think of they the could push... Yeah. The card that you, they, they know what card you're going to pick because they can make it sort of slightly different than the rest and you, and they know subconsciously you'll pick that one. I'm, I'm yep. not, I'm not saying yeah, what totally. you're saying is ridiculous. I'm just questioning. I'm, I'm, this is how I, <laughs> I question the whole thing. No, I think it's good to question and I question it sort of constantly, I guess. 
I, I am I am pretty a priori I bought into the fact that I think um, consciousness sort of doesn't work work the way we think it does, and I think a lot of scientists used to believe that too. Like I think if you look at like the writings of a lot of early quantum field theorists, they don't seem to believe there's this like complete separation between mind over the matter, and they play with the idea constantly that that our mind affects matter, and then you know before that you had like, like every all the you know, original kind of enlightenment thinkers were like alchemists and stuff. Um, well, and even look at the original but, quantum yeah. mechanics physicists. I mean, it's a very eerie area of science. I mean, nobody talks yes. about that an, an object light years away can change instantly by observing something here on the earth. Like it's part of one of the implications of, of quantum mechanics that's the whole Schrodinger's cat thing and also Einstein's entanglement theory. So mm -hmm. why this happens, we don't really understand as far as I know. Yeah, no, we, we have no idea how it understands, uh, how, how those things work, entanglement uh, or, you know, or, um, uh, you know, tunneling or Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. All, all of these things are, you know, well transcend. I mean, basically there's this big debate at the Copenhagen school. And it was like quantum reality. Is it a descriptor of reality or is it merely a set of mathematical formalisms that sort of, uh, both has instrumental and predictive value. And the latter was sort of just chosen, uh, you know, it was like that, that from mid century onwards. And there were, there were heretics who disagreed with this, like David Bohm, but, but, and, and again, early, quantum field theorists like Heisenberg and, and Niels Bohr that flirted with the idea that was more of a descriptor of reality. But really now all it is, is it's sort of, you know, shut up and calculate is sort of the, uh, you know, that was Feynman and onwards. That was the, the motto. And uh, I think sometimes to, to make big progress, you have to go down the branch and then take another route. And I think that might be you know, an interesting route to, to new scientific progress here. And, and, and I often think that like, when you look at an anomaly an anomaly can be a harbinger of the next paradigm. That's why I'm so interested in the UFOs and the mind over matter thing. Like if you look at quantum mechanics, like black body radiation was discovered in the 1860s by this guy named, um, I think it was Gustav Kirchhoff or something like that. He's a German guy. And only until we figured out that light was quantized in the, in like, I think it was like, uh, 1903 or four or something, uh, did we realize why that occurred? But it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was basically in the Newtonian system, black body radiation was this crazy anomaly that like didn't make any sense or, or the flight path of mercury pre relativity, you know, also crazy anomaly that we just didn't, didn't understand until, um, you know, until Einstein. And so I think it's really important to look at anomalies because I think they're harbingers of the next paradigm. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world 
is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
Did I ever tell you about the time I met Yuri Geller, the the psychic? No, tell, give me that story, man. That's awesome. So Yuri Geller, I knew about since I was a kid because there was even a comic book where he teams up with Daredevil in Marvel Comics and you see him like melting tanks with his psychic powers. Like he was really most famous in the 70s and 80s. And, but anyway, I met him in 1999 and he was pitching me on, he wanted to create a website. This is in early days of, you know, web and venture capital for the web and stuff. He pitched me on, he wanted to make a website that would increase people's psychic powers. And it would basically would be a big button. Mm -hmm. And if you click on this button, your psychic powers would increase. And so he did do some stuff with me where like, for instance, the picture thing, he, he said, I want you to draw something and I'm going to tell you what you drew. And so he gave me a piece of paper and a, a very noisy magic marker. And I drew a tree and he basically said, uh, it's either a tree or a flower. But I think it's because he's used to hearing, you know, here, this is what a circle sounds like. This is what mm. branches sound like. Yeah. The trunk of a tree sounds like. So, so I don't know. And then he also did the whole thing where he bent a spoon, but you know, I didn't know what to make of that mm-hmm. either way. Like I've, I've, I've heard lots of things. Did you bring the spin or did he bring the spin? Uh, somebody found this. We were in an office space that we were just borrowing, like someone, a conference room. So somebody, okay. somebody who I knew very well so, okay. uh, got, got out of the kitchen a spoon. Somebody who wasn't in cahoots with him no, prior not. to yeah. you meeting him. Definitely not. But okay. well, he's supposedly cool. like extremely strong with his hands and he was rubbing the spoon kind of near a radiator. And so who knows what effects these things had. I mean, I've never tried to figure it you out. You know, Yuri, Yuri Geller attributes a lot of his powers. And again, I'm not saying he does have powers. I haven't met him. I'd love to. But he he said he attributes a lot of his powers to an uh, uh, an alien contact event he had as a child. See, and it's interesting. On the one hand, the the skeptical side of me says that if you believe in one thing, you believe in everything. So that is no, <laughs> sure that is no surprise to me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I actually remember that from from his story. But on the other thing, this does start to connect the dots on all these things you're interested in. Like we'll get back to the psychic stuff, but you've met again, like Stanford professors who have supposedly material from UFOs that with with materials that aren't seen anywhere else on earth. So like describe that. Yeah. There's a guy named Gary Nolan. And actually, um, so as you know, I used to produce Eric Weinstein's, uh, uh, podcast, the portal. And I remember going with Eric to Joe Rogan's uh, outfit or whatever, you know, and he was, he was, he was a guest on the show. And I was, I was like, so excited to meet Rogan. And the first thing I said to Rogan and, and Jamie, his producer, I was like, um, you guys have to interview this, this Stanford professor. He has, uh, uh, UFO reported UFO crash materials with isotope ratios that don't exist naturally on earth. And they just looked at me like, who the fuck is this kid? <laughs> like, he's crazy. Um, but it's true. There is literally a Stanford microbiologist who is very well respected by all the other Stanford professors who's tenured. He has a corner office. He has a team of PhDs. He spun out two or three companies uh, with like, uh, at least one of them was a, a nine-figure exit. Um, 
to big pharma. I think I think Roche and and and, and other big pharma companies. So he's a super well respected guy. He's not a you yeah. Know, a there was quack, a public company. By any means. He, R-I-G-L was the symbol. Like he was a head of a public company. He, I don't know if he was ahead of. He spun it out. I think it spun out of his lab, and he's done that multiple times. But he's a he's a super hard headed, real guy with no woo in his past. He's not one of these like new agey people. And um, he has materials in his possession that don't have isotope ratios found on this Earth or in asteroids. And they and how were does he know found that? by. He knows that through uh, uh, ion mass spec, through through mass spectrometry, and so that's the typical way of discovering isotope ratios. There's certain isotope ratios that you know there's a, that you find on Earth, and then certain isotope ratios that you don't find. And you just he was looking at things that had ratios that were just way way outside what we would normally find. And he got the materials from Jacques Vallée, who is basically like the go-to for like if you're if you see like a ufo crash you send the materials to jacques he's like the citizens collection depot for ufo uh crash parts he is actually the the basis for francois truffaut's character this like kind of eccentric french scientist in close encounters for the third kind with uh mm-hmm. you know made by steven spielberg steven spielberg consulted with jacques so jacques like the godfather of ufology and he was like, I need a real kind of a person with uh, 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 more of a material science background than me um, to to look at this. And he he found Gary Nolan. Gary Nolan did the analysis and he sort of confirmed that these things just don't exist normally on Earth. So if That's you wanted to, to make, say, if, if you wanted to make something, a material that yep. hasn't previously existed on Earth, is it possible? Yeah. So so. It's uh, it's possible, and if these things were really heavy elements, like you know, the classic example would be like uranium plutonium. You know, I think it's really expensive. Um, so it would be possible to do with a centrifuge, but the question is why? Like, if you could, so assuming you can sort of like you know move go through the chain of events, like this person. You know, and in Ubatuba, Brazil, or whatever, sees the this, uh, um, or was it Ubatuba? Is Ubatuba Brazil? I don't know. I was going to ask you if, if, that, if that's a real place because that's a crazy name. <laughs> Hi, Ubatuba, I'm from Ubatuba is Ubatuba. It is in Brazil, yes. And and there there was, and that is one of the parts came from Ubatuba. So it's like this person in Ubatuba just sees a crash and then mails it to Jacques. What like one of those people has to be like a bad actor who's like fabricating materials for this to be true and has to have access to a centrifuge. It's just a strange story that I think is worthy of following up on. And so the following up that Gary is doing to like have more of a smoking gun here, because admittedly somebody with again zero motive or cause could have, you know, created these bizarre isotope ratios, is Gary's actually developing kind of an atom mapper. Um, where he can figure out whether the atoms were kind of config- configured in very deliberate ways that are completely outside of human capabilities to even configure. Like we're, we 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 don't um, get that granular in terms of our ability. I think it's uh, uh, 
it's like, I don't know, so it's like 0.2 nanometers or 0.3 nanometers or something, but we, we can't configure atoms. That's just like, it's literally outside human abilities. So, um, yeah, if, I mean, if he sort of so, does that, I think that that becomes even more conclusive. So, so what does he think ultimately? Like, like one question I would have is why, is why are there atoms involved at all? In the sense that if someone is traveling, you know, faster than the speed of light in order to, you'd have to go faster than the speed of light or you have to live like millions of years if you're going to go from one, mm -hmm. even one solar system to another. And mm -hmm. why is the, why are there metals involved at all as opposed to some other, you know, non, you know, beyond human understanding way of traveling? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it, it cuts to something I believe, which is that these things are probably intentionally dropped for us uh, to look at. And I don't think that they're necessarily essential parts of some traveling vehicle. Mm. Uh, to your to your point, uh, because they're probably it's usually like John Mack, who is the head of the Harvard psych. So, again, talk about the intersection between credentials and saying crazy shit. John Mack was the head of the Harvard psychiatry department, and he spent the last 10 years of his career, maybe 15 career, years of his career studying alien abductions. And what he used to say is that the things you would see in the forms of UFOs were like barely comprehensible tech that was sort of the frontier. It would like these things sort of beget technological progress because they were like the next thing that we had to develop as a society. Like what's an example? And so maybe these, like in uh, uh, the late 19th century, we'd see these like airships. So it was like right when we were starting to get like sort of hot air balloons, but it would be these like metallic airships that, you know, now you might call a UFO, but like that's how they interpreted it back then. And then obviously sort of you get the Wright brothers. And I don't know if the Wright brothers knew about the airships, but it's like, it's always like the, the next sort of thing. And then, and then there are more conspiratorial sort of bizarre narratives. Like there's a guy named Philip J. Corso who claims to have been in the, Roswell cleanup collection crew uh, and ended up on Dwight Eisenhower's National Security Council. So he's not like a fake guy, like he was in the national security apparatus, but he claims to have been in the, the Roswell cleanup crew under Roscoe Hillencroder, who was uh, one of the heads of the CIA at the time in 47. And he claimed that his whole claim was that, uh, you know, fi modern fiber optics and uh, transistors and semiconductors were re reverse engineered from, um, you know, what was collected. And again, I don't know if I believe that. How does he connect uh, the dots to, let's say, Shockley or the other people involved in the first semiconductors? He claims that there was some sort of, like the government sort of handed these things out to, I mean, I think the private sector was more entangled than it is now in some, I mean, now it's still more entangled than people realize with the public sector, but you had things like, like Bell Labs was sort of quasi, you know, public private. Like there was a lot of public funding that went into there. It was, it was super probably tight interface with, you know, uh, military and intelligence. And so I think his view would have been that they would have given it to, to them or whatever. But, you know, look, I, I'm more of the mind in that case that, you know, what was it like the, was it like the traitorous eight 
the in Fairchild, and then and you had uh, Bell Lab, like, and then and I think there was there was a patent for the semiconductor that was actually in um, in Munich, I think, as early as the '30s. So I don't I don't believe that narrative necessarily, but I do think if if the UFO crash thing is is real, which I I do think it's real. I think it's that's probably above fifty percent in my mind that it's real. Then they're like left for us. And to your point, they're not like part of the. They're not essential parts of the craft. And and what what has led you to think that it's real? Like, have you talked? Like you mentioned, this guy was on the Roswell cleanup crew, which sounds mm. very official. But who else was on the Roswell cleanup crew? Like, did everybody else just keep a secret, which humans don't really do? Well. <sighs> A lot of shit has come out about UFOs over the last 50 years. And that cleanup crew probably wasn't that big. So I don't know. I'm not sure. But the UFO thing, if you, okay, if you were to take like the opposite side of the UFO thing, if you do deep research on it for like two or three days, you come away with the conclusion that like this is either like insane and true or it is the most sophisticated psyop you've ever experienced in your life it, it involves it's an intergenerational psyop so it's like a, it's like decades long uh it involves all these disparate players that are don't seem coordinated at all it involves like navy fighter pilots who have like no incentive to like lie and they don't you know attention seeking behavior is super reprimanded among them and so it's this just like it just feels way too elaborate well, or, you know, like, a, like to your point, things come out. And so, yeah. Yeah. Like the government, what was it? Two years ago? I forget when it was because of with COVID, like, like 2018 was essentially last year. So yeah. Right. Like whenever it was just in the past few years, the government did release video footage for the first time ever of what the Pentagon said was they didn't call it UFOs. They said it was unidentified aerial phenomena. There was, they have on video Navy pilots. I think they were Navy pilots videotaping something that was moving faster than them wasn't like a figment of light and mm -hmm. uh, uh like it was real and then suddenly just sped off yeah ex exactly yeah and and the guy commander david fravor you know the the famous video is this tiktok scene um at nimitz uh uh naval base uh off the coast of san diego in 2004 and the 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 fighter pilot, this guy, Commander David Fravor, you know, he has a pretty serious track record. He was actually tasked with protecting LA during 9-11. You know, like when 9-11 uh -huh. occurred, it was like, we don't know what city's next, sort of thing, like that day. Like he was the guy who was supposed to protect LA. So you like hear him interviewed and you're like, this guy's not a liar. Like it, it just doesn't feel like he's full of shit. And I've actually met the radar operator on the USS Princeton sean cahill again like really cool guy doesn't seem like an attention seeking like you know and and uh yeah what was seen was bizarre and miraculous and yet yeah, came out in 2017 and i th i think there's there have been a lot of other sightings like what uh, what was that, seen that, like and how do they know it wasn't like just some reflection off the clouds or whatever i don't know whatever the explanations are for these things it was it was uh uh, sort of the tic-tac shaped object. And it, I think it went from like, uh, 60,000 feet above sea level to like, you know, right next to sea level in like a second or something. It was like just a ridiculous time 
laps that you would just never it basically broke our laws of physics and and the five observables that are consistently seen among these crafts are uh, you have transmedium travel so uh, they actually often come out of water and and, and sort of seamlessly go in and out of water um, uh, low observability or like cloaking mechanisms so they're like not well detected uh, no you know, uh, yeah. Did I say no visible signatures? Yeah, I guess like cloaking, low observability. Um, uh, they instantaneous acceleration, so they break conservation momentum. They 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 go faster than the speed of light, ostensibly. Like they go insanely fast, and they like stop on a dime. Um, so sort of you know things like that that just don't seem to make uh, uh, any sense. And then no visible propulsion as well, which is you know this bizarre. Again, bizarre thing. Like, obviously, you need you need some propulsion that you're that you're and, looking. You need an engine or something. And how do they know it wasn't some just weird, um, you know, what do you call it when you see something uh, in the distance but it's not real, like an illusion? An illusion. Yeah. Yeah, an illusion or a mirage. Or yeah, something. mirage. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's just like they're, oh, they're oh, because they saw it on radar. You, you have you have so. You, yeah, oh yeah, it's corroborated by yes, forward forward looking infrared radar, which they had just installed these new systems from Raytheon in the case of Nimitz. And uh and I think maybe, you know, the infrared piece of there the infrared thing is maybe a bigger part of the story than we realize. I think there are certain sensors that pick these things up, but yeah, I, I'm with you, but like the same things consistently get seen across like all these people. So unless there's like Unless scientists can figure out some like illusion or mirage effect created for fighter pilots, but then also people on the ground, and then they also seem to be super attracted to our nuclear facilities in this bizarre way, it just feels like you know an overwhelming amount of evidence. And I think it's bursting at the seams. And I think in our lifetime, the consensus is going to shift pretty wildly on this topic, which. Uh, I'm excited about. You know, it's interesting. Like if I were to the, make a venture bet, it would be it would be on this. And I, it, for me, it's not cynical. It's not a venture yeah. bet. It's a it's a meaning seeking bet. But I think you know, if I were trying to be strategic or whatever, bet I'd bet on this. How would you bet on it? Like, you know, what, what would what what would something look like that would get you to to bet on it? I don't I don't know. You know what sort of financial instrument? You know, especially in the wake of yesterday and. Sam Bankman fried and crypto blowing up or whatever. I don't think a world where everything's a derivative is necessarily a good one. But um uh but uh I think so I don't know if it'd be good to be able to bet on it and I don't know exactly what the repercussions are. I'm just saying if there was some like say there was like uh some some market that was made that was like you know U UFO the UFO consensus like would I go along that yeah like any day. For sure, I would, and I think I, you'd make a lot of money on that. But but again, I'm I'm I just want to like figure out how reality works like that. I'm just fascinated with that. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. 
Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I mean, it's interesting you bring up the nuclear power thing. Like, obviously, there was a big spike in UFO sightings after we were doing nuclear testing and dropping nuclear bombs and so on. And so there's some idea maybe that kind of nuclear power was the tipping point for, you know, people, from, you know, beings from other planets to take notice uh-huh. of the Earth. But is nuclear power such an interesting thing? Like, why wasn't electricity? The interesting thing like oh we could make we could actually make something that benefits our lives that moves at the speed yeah. of light like that seems even more incredible to me than than nuclear power or even fire so suddenly for the first time in earth's history one member of a species could wipe out a forest in minutes like never before right. in the history of human society until right a homo sapien set fire to a forest has that happened and so why weren't these events that triggered, oh, this civilization's waking up? It's a great question. I think there's something that is uniquely apocalyptic about nuclear mm-hmm. force in terms of our ability to sort of wipe ourselves out. So I guess the you know, few possible theories are the one sort of Occam's razor theory is they're like benevolent protectors and they don't want us to kill ourselves. The second theory would be like they you they sort of mine earth for like resources. And these could be like energetic resources, like that we don't quite understand. Like love could be like something they're mining. And then like distraction and war could be something that like another faction is mining or something. So they don't want their like mine, their their gold mine to be like destroyed or whatever. So that could be the second reason. And then the third reason is like a this gets into stuff that like Tom DeLong, who's been really, you know, at the forefront of disclosure, former or actually current Blink-182 frontman says, and that's that there you get all this gamma radiation fallout when a nuke goes off and there's sort of an EMP effect. And uh, he has said that that might actually fuck with the, uh, excuse my French, uh, flight path of mm. uh, these UFOs and actually pop them into our, sort of timeline and our visible reality. Um, and so I find that sort of um, to be fascinating as well. I think it's more one and two than three. And the reason I think it's more one and two is because they show up around nuclear facilities. They don't just show up around tests, nuclear tests that have gone off. They do show up around tests that like the first nuclear test that went off was Trinity in New Mexico. And 20 days later, an avocado shaped metallic object fell out of the sky and Jacques Vallée wrote a whole book about it. Actually, it's really good. And and that has happened multiple times, but they also just seem to show up at nuclear, you know, enrichment deployment sites pretty consistently. So I think they're protecting their resources and I don't know exactly what the resources are, but yeah. Do you think, do you think getting into uh, wacky territory here, James? No, but it's, it's really fascinating because like I said, it's on this frontier where look, even the government has released videos of objects they can't identify. And yes. And you were mentioning to me the other day when we were on the phone that Barack Obama has, has even said, yes, there are things we don't know about that we've observed. 
Totally. And I, look, I've had a lot of friends, you know, Eric Weinstein, who I love, has publicly apologized to me as, you know, he used to call me a quack or say, you know, I was dropped on my head as a child or something. It's like this one place where I'm brain dead it, it, around the UFO topic. I would push it all the time. And I think a lot of people sort of apologized to me over the last couple of years. And I think more people will continue to over the next couple of years. I really believe that. I think. Um, what? Why? What? What led him to apologize to you? Like, what did he observe? And and, and not. And by the way, I I like when I think you you should be a priori skeptical. So I don't and I don't I don't feel uh, like I need an apology from anybody. Like I think everybody should be like, this is bullshit first, I, and then I need some apologies sort of from people. But that's genuine. another story. <laughs> Fair enough, man. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think it was like. Yeah, the government and the New York Times and like all these sort of like, you know, institutional gatekeepers, them admitting, okay, there's something probably here. And then and then now it's a question around like hard evidence. And, you know, if we had any programs in the government that have studied these things that we don't know about and stuff like that coming out, which well, I think all of those things are going to come out in the next decade or so. Yeah, particularly since like, I don't know what the time is, it's like 50 years, but like, you know, things filed by the government in this or things that became classified in the sixties or seventies are going to be start to be unlocked soon. So we're going to see what some of these government documents reveal, but what, why totally. did like, you, yes. you mentioned this once uh program Stargate that was stopped, I guess in 1995, why did they stop it? If there were results? It's a great question. And I don't really think they did stop it because actually there's a book that came out called skinwalkers at the Pentagon about modern UFO research and about the ATIP and OSAP program that was revealed in that New York Times article that you mentioned, the Leslie Kane article in 2017. And they mentioned remote viewing being a part of the study for ATIP and OSAP. So the idea that uh, remote viewing was sunsetted in 1995, I think was BS. I think it got moved somewhere else. Uh, you know, obviously that begets a lot of optical scrutiny. And so I think Sometimes these things have exoteric versions and esoteric versions or versions that seem dysfunctional and then underlying versions that are more functional. And I think, I think maybe the, you know, that was just the Stargate was just the initial R and D or something. And then, you know, they've done, they've, they're doing more since then. I, I don't, I don't know if they've gotten really good at parapsychology because I think that requires a sort of, spiritual and moral purity or something that you know maybe people in the government don't have or something but, like but that this guy so was <laughs> this guy you spoke to though uh what was his name paul metz or uh, uh paul smith this guy that you paul smith yeah yeah this guy that you spoke to said mm -hmm. you know he, he gave you all these examples of remote viewing in this government program and how does he think it works if it if it exists so the way it worked then was I think you would have a, a core kind of remote viewer and that was like the quote unquote psychic and then you'd have like an analyst and that's really important because you didn't you have like a left brain kind of overlay and you want to shut that off as much as possible if you're doing like the right brain psychic download and then the analyst is like using the left brain to like figure out what the actual object mm -hmm. or like you know, uh, thing is that the, that the psychic is sort of describing. And then beyond that, 
truthfully, James, I'm out of my depth and don't know the full protocol. But I do want to take a class at some point, and I might, uh, I might hit up Joseph McMonagall and try to try to go out to Virginia or the Monroe Institute out there and try to learn. I'll if go you with you. Want to join? We could, yeah. we could do it together. Let's do it, man. Let's okay. do it. I'm down. Cool. And, and so, what? Like, let's say there are, you know, something we don't understand, like some sort of parapsychology powers or whatever that are are mm -hmm. are actionable. Like, meaning you could do things that are useful, like remote viewing or whatever. Mm. What do you think is mm. is the most? Like, why can't someone have godlike powers? Like, what, what's the most you've seen or heard about in terms of, you know, reaching beyond what we think is our our humble mortal selves? There, the re recent examples are people like Ingo Swan. I mean, you can always ask yourself the question: like, does somebody like a David Blaine have more of this than you know we realize, or something like? I, I don't know. I've met him. He seems pretty mystical and interesting like there's something going on there um but I, I don't know i go back to jesus like you know i don't know if you you think he existed or not but but i think he's a sort of a great a great example but i do think i think looking at these things where it gets dark are like you know classic examples of people who have these powers are like Aleister Crowley, you know, somebody like that. And like, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's sort yeah. of like this like demonic occultic figure from the early 20th century. And like, he was, you know, maybe he was maybe like British intelligence or something, but he, he, he was like a really bad. And he was, he was in this cult called the OTO. He, he's the, like the perfect example of like why you shouldn't do this stuff like why it's it's sort of like you're like it's like staring directly at the sun or something it's really bad and like i think there's there's a marked difference between the occult and having faith and the occult involves trying to do something in a repeatable way to gain power with it and having faith involves sort of submitting yourself to god and letting almost god hybridize it's himself with you or something in a, in a, in a strange sort of way or act through you. And, um, I think there's a, there's a big difference between those two things. And so you can, you can do it in the sort of black magic way. You know, there's a left-hand path and a right-hand path. And I think you do it in the sort of black magic way, the occult way, or you can just have faith or something. Well, like for you, like you've really explored this stuff at, at a, mm. a deep level and you've done I highly encourage people to go to your YouTube channel if they Google Jesse Michaels, but it's, I forget the name. It's Thanks. like alchemy. What, American alchemy. American alchemy. Yeah. I love that name. Yeah. I mean, even though I didn't remember it just then I need a better, I'm getting older. I need a better memory, but, um, how has studying this stuff changed your life and the way you view, uh, kind of the, the normal obstacles of life? It, it gives me, it makes me think that there's a lot about humans we don't understand and there's a problem and then and then it's like there's probably a lot about yourself you don't understand and you probably have all these capacities that you don't really understand if you, you sort of have faith in that um you can sort of cultivate these things again just through like living your your earnest genuine life and not through like you know reading like occult texts or anything like that which i would not suggest you do and then I think on a sort of a more macro level, I think it just makes you realize there's still 
you know, there's this view, I think, in, in academia that we're at the end of history and that we've sort of all stones have been uh, unturned. And I love the, you know, Nietzsche has an essay on history and he talks about the academia then. And this was, you know, 19th century uh, sort of per being purveyors of undigested stones of knowledge. Mm. It really feels like if you're in academia now, you are being force fed an already set body of knowledge. You are being dispersed from a citadel of priestly professors on high, a set of knowledge that is set in stone. And we, we know everything there is to know in the sort of it's like the Steven Pinker, you know, like we are at the you know peak enlightenment, you know, we are enlightened as people or whatever. And I think the opposite view is the one that I have, which is actually, no, there are tons of bizarre uh, human beings are amazing, but we're super depraved and we are groping in the dark. Science is the map. It is not the territory. And it is interesting in terms of its predictive and instrumental value, but it does not, it is not the ultimate descriptor of reality. And um, looking at these anomalies gives you a sense of wonder. And, uh, you know, Plato says, says, you know, all philosophy starts with wonder. And I think it, that sets you down this sort of like really fun, dialectic, peripatetic um, inquiry process into like reality that I think everyone should do. That is just really amazing. And it makes you grow and it's good for you. And it makes you feel more excited about life because not everything's set in stone. Um, you know, there are new frontiers to be, to be discovered. And so that's the goal of the show is to sort of like make other people excited like that. And then, yeah, just sort of spread that, evangelize that. You um, know, it's a really great point. Like science basically thinks we've uncovered, this is not being anti-science by saying this, but Acad academic science basically thinks we've uncovered 99% of what we could know. We just got to get that final one tenth of 1% yeah. or whatever. And, and yet, exactly. but yet it's common sense to think we've learned so much about life and reality and how the universe works in the past 100 years. And only really in the past 100 years, uh, imagine what we'll learn in the next 10,000 years, like, you know, a hundred times a hundred years. So Clearly, we're going to learn a lot of things that we would have thought unimaginable right now, but and we're probably not going to be around to see it. But it, you know, science is going to continue to innovate as long as the the world survives, and it's innovating at a faster and faster rate, as pointed out by many authors and scientists and writers and, and so on. So, having that sense of wonder, just like Einstein did when he imagined what would it be like if someone was traveling the speed of light, looking at someone on Earth these types of thought experiments that are, that seem very childlike at first, but result in, you know, that one thought experiment experiment resulted in nuclear energy ultimately. So, you know, it, it's going to be amazing to see, you know, how this sense of wonder continues to, to fuel our understanding of consciousness, the world, whether or not even any of these things are true. There's, we know common sense. We know most of the things out there. We don't know. Like yeah, most of right. what reality yeah. is, we do, it's probably the other, it's like 99.9% .9 of things we don't know yet. And only, yeah. we only know 0.1%. There's a great book by a guy named Sam Arbusman. He's actually a friend of mine who, uh, it's called The, the Half-Life of Facts. And it talks mm -hmm. about how facts have a literal decay function on them. Like there, it is, it's, it's not only, 
you know, ahistorical to say that we know everything. It's, it's literally like a safe bet to say that like at least half of what we say is true now will get overturned in the future. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we over-indexed on protecting the current citadel of knowledge? Do we have too many like Michael Shermers out there saying, you know, I'm skeptical of this new idea because it's, it, it attacks the status quo or whatever. Um, are we over-indexed on that or are we over-indexed on like really cool frontier wacky science? You know, is, 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 are things too fringy? Uh, do we have too much like border science and like, you know, heretical science? Or do we have too much skepticism? And I think we live in the age of disenchantment and we have way too much skepticism. And if we can weight things a little more towards the, the wackiness, I think we can make progress. And it's obviously Scylla and Charybdis. You know, you can't, you can't, um, there's some efficient frontier there. You know, you don't want to be fully wacky and, and you know, open to everything. But uh, I think we're over-indexed on the, on the opposite. Because there are a lot of people who try to just take this psychic stuff and make a quick dollar on it. And, and that's of course, totally. given a bad, uh, uh, given a bad rap, but there are, as everybody, as even the government admits, as many people admit, there are things that have been observed that we don't understand, whether it's psychic or UFOs or, or other things. And I think being on that quest and talking to the serious people you've spoken to and, and looking at the evidence and, and listening to these stories and being discerning, which you have, I could tell you have, because Nobody on your show has seemed wacky. Everybody is like super s smart, actually, and serious. And it's an incredible show that you've put together. What's the next Thank episode going to be? I can't, I can't wait to watch the next episode. Yeah, it should be fun. Well, Graham Hancock's coming over uh, this week. Are you familiar with him? He, no. he was just on Rogan, actually. He is He's kind of an ancient civilizations guy, and he thinks that um, there was a maybe a... a preceding civilization there was like an antecedent civilization to ours something like atlantis maybe and it was wiped out um in the younger driest period by a comet from a torrid meteor stream that might have hit the earth and he has all this sort of interesting archaeological evidence really um you know this put yeah and he he's super interesting so i think doing one with him doing one about about china and tiktok because i think that's a big undercovered story and then I agree with I, you I on that. With jo <laughs> right. And then I did one with Jacques Vallée, who I, I mentioned on this show, the sort of, you know, godfather of the UFO. Oh, man. World. And I then can't... I might do one with Jordan Peterson. I'm going to email him today and see if I can. do one. He's been on the podcast. He's, he's a good guest. And, you know, I'm sad to say mm -hmm. when I had him on, I didn't really know every I just read his, his first book, 10 Rules for a Living or whatever was called or I forget the title now. But um, I didn't really know everything about him. and. I instead just asked, I viewed him as like my personal psych psychologist and just asked him <laughs> questions that would I think selfishly that's right. help me. <laughs> you, knew, you know what? I was thinking like if I do something with him, I was thinking I would do the same thing. I think that's cooler. And I think, you know, he's so in the media already. He's done so many interviews that maybe the, the less commoditized thing to do that you'd also get more value out of is actually just like doing therapy with him. I think it's a good yeah. idea. That's cool. I mean, I mean, one of the last questions I asked him was, um, you've been on Joe Rogan. Now you've been on my show. How can I be a better podcaster? What would you tell me to be a better podcaster? And he said straight out and like, we've only been speaking for about two hours at this point. And that that's the extent to which I knew him. Then he said, uh, you know, you lack confidence. And I was thinking about mm. it a lot afterwards and he was right. Like I get, 
wow. you know, sometimes intimidated by my guests and a little nervous. And that kind of, you know, I think most people don't notice it when I'm doing the podcast, but he noticed it and and pointed it out directly as the as the I don't think that's the only difference between me and Joe Rogan. There's a lot of others, but he he was basically saying you could be a lot better if you were more confident. And I don't think I'm bad. I think I'm good, but it was a good insight. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, he's pretty, he's a kind of a piercing, incisive guy. I remember, yeah, I met him a few times and he kind of like looks through you, doesn't look at you or something. Yeah. And and, and uh, he's very serious. And uh, yeah, I remember I was, I felt like super under, we got dinner once and I was just like, not like he was like wearing a full suit. And I was like, I feel like I should, I was wearing some, you know, stupid tech, like, pull over. <laughs> it's just like, I feel out of place here. But, uh, but he's I wonder cool. why, I'm a, I'm I wonder why he yeah. wears a, a, a suit so formally. I wonder if, cause he's so into symbolism and what things mean that you have to question, like if he's wearing a, a formal suit when he's suspected probably that other people wouldn't be, cause you know, you're a tech guy, tech guys rarely wear mm-hmm. suits. Uh, mm-hmm. I wonder why he chose to wear a suit. That just feels like his whole vibe is like, make your bed, get your life in order, you know, wear a suit, you know, like present well, do the little things right. And then your, your life will sort of, you know, it's like, it's like 12 rules of life or whatever. Your, your life will sort of come together as a result. I find that to be the less interesting part of him. I think the, he wrote a book called maps of meaning about like Jungian psychology and super interesting and super interested in Jung and Dostoevsky and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Bible and Joseph Campbell. And like, I, I think that part of him and the more sort of mystical part of him is more interesting than the sort of rote self-help stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I, I the, agree. Like, like the second thing sells better. Yeah. The, the videos he's done, you know, he's videotaped all his class sessions when he was a professor and those stories he's told linking, you know, mythology and, and storytelling with current day, you know, behaviors is just fascinating. All the connections he draws from all every different religion, every different, you know, belief system. It's just, it's just fascinating how he connects all the dots. And I pe- think I agree. People underappreciate that of him. Like, and that those court, those two uh, lectures he gives really show how, how smart he is. Like all the other stuff is just political and whatever. I don't even, that's why I didn't know about his whole, I was more interested in, in basically the the psychology of what he's doing so yeah jesse michaels american alchemy <laughs> i appreciate we've known each by the way i was thinking this is the first time probably that now a father son team have been on oh. my podcast and i i <laughs> totally awesome. forgot that like your dad barry michaels mm-hmm. who wrote uh, uh, the tools the tools yeah that book was a game-changing book for me and really your dad's book really helped me and he's and his appearance on the podcast really oh man i always try to get personal elevation from the guests on my podcast else why do a podcast and yeah. your, your dad is one i could clearly point to and say and you as well and you guys have, have changed my life so thank you. thank you and tell your dad thank you i really you know enjoy his stuff and and you're following in his footsteps You've changed my life. I'll always remember meeting you and hanging at Google. And uh, I loved your book. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. And it, and it was, I read it at a time in my life to uh, choose yourself where I was sort of at a dead end and, uh, you know, didn't know what the next path was. And uh, 
it sort of came together and, and, you know, it, I really think, uh, it was in no small part due to, due to your stuff. So I'm, oh, I'm a massive fan. And, yeah. And you, you, you also, you know, blazed the initial trail for, you know, I think having people like you and Rogan and people to look up to on the podcasting front who are independent and clearly just themselves and how they like interact with their guests is, is so essential. Cause like, I, I looked at, you know, going into like media, you know, out of college and stuff and, you know, like working for one of these publications or something, you know, I interned for Charlie Rose and John Stewart back in the day. And, uh, and that just looks so bad to me. And now, now I can do this and it's really because of people like you, like, I, you know, just like go and interview people yourself, like, and, and it, you need that, you need people to do that, to show you that it's possible. So you know, I'll tell really you a, a, a little story. When I was 12 years old, I just really always, even when I was looking, I read books about journalism and about interviewing. And, and, and so I would, I was, I would, I talked about this a little bit before on, on the podcast, but I, I was 12 years old, it was 1980. And I called around to every Senator and Congressman's office and, and the president in the white house. And I basically said, I was interviewing for this politicians for this local newspaper. It was called the home news. And can I talk to the Senator? Can I talk to the Congressman and so on? And I interviewed like a ton of senators, Congressmen, uh, the, the chief usher of the white house. I didn't get to Jimmy Carter who was president at the time, but I talked to people at the white house, uh, talked to the, you know, high up people. And then finally one Senator's office called the home news and said, is there this 12 year old boy who's interviewing people for you guys? And the editor in chief was like, no, like, who is this kid? And so the editor-in-chief called me and said, it. you can't say you're from the home news. And he said, but why don't you come over and hang out for a while? So I went there and he showed me all around the newspaper. We had lunch with journalists. We, we you know, we're, we're, we're hanging out. And he said, and I said, can I interview for you guys? I interview politicians. He said, listen, we have PhDs in journalism applying to do work, to work for us. We can't do anything with you, but keep at it and call us you know, 20 years from now. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. That's the best though. When, when you just, you kind of, you know, just like take that leap and you, you, you take the shot and you're, you're, you know, super underqualified, but you just go for it. I mean, you, you, you need to do that. And, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's how everything gets started. And that yeah. was, I mean, when I, when I was at Google, really like the reason, I feel like I started this show and it all started when I was at Google, when I was reaching out to people like you, who I was just a fan of. I was just like, I liked your stuff. And, uh, I was like, Oh, I have this big name behind me it's Google. And then, you know, maybe I can meet James and we can, you know, do a cool interview or whatever. And I remember, uh, yeah, it's, 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 I think great to do that. Well, and that was so much fun for me too. Like what, a, what a, a real great thing to, talk at this company that has changed so many lives as well. And, and, you know, you, you conducted the interview and, and it was, it, it was a lot of fun. So, so again, Jesse, we gotta, we gotta do this more often. It's been a couple of years since we last spoke before this. So, but I'm glad we did. And I'm glad we we've caught up and we've got to do this uh, more often because you're, you're, you're onto so many interesting things and let me know if I could ever help in any way. So I, I appreciate you coming on, on the show. This is a blast, man. It was an honor. And uh, let's let's do a remote viewing class together. I'll, I'll follow Excellent. up on that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> cool. Thanks again. All right. Later. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.